Well, it's certainly a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you tonight. Um, and obviously, Pastor Farrell's not here, so I'm going to talk about him a little bit uh, behind his back in a good way. Um, I just we're, we're so blessed here um, to have him stand in the pulpit week after week and to shepherd us and to lead. Um, you know, just very, very thankful for for Pastor Farrell and all that he does and uh, just is a man of prayer and pours out his soul before the Lord and studies hard and and loves us, loves Timberlake and desires desires what's best uh, for us. And I'm just just wanted to kind of publicly say without him here how thankful I am for him, thankful for his leadership in my own life and uh, for his shepherding of of my family over the past five years that we've been here. I uh, just very much appreciate him. So um, thankful for the opportunity to to stand in the pulpit tonight and open God's word with you. Uh, we're going to do kind of a topical study this evening. Um, I typically like to go through a text and, and work through a text, and we're going to be flipping around some and looking at different passages of Scripture. But I want to start with this question for you. What is the good life? What is it? What does it look like to live life well? What would that look like if you were to live life to the fullest, if you were to live a good, human, flourishing type of life? I mean, what is, what is a properly functioning human life supposed to look like? During our time here, our 80 years, however long it may be, what is it supposed to look like? What's a good life look like for us? And the reality is, is that, that you and I all, whether you realize this or not, you have some, some vision in your head of what a good life looks like. There, there's something out there, and honestly, most of us probably couldn't articulate it in you know, a series of, of propositions and a series of statements. Maybe most of us probably couldn't even describe it in a paragraph. But there's some image, there's some vision, um, there's some picture of a good, fulfilled, satisfying life that's out there that we all long after. And I think we make our daily decisions, again, whether you realize this or not, we make our daily decisions based on what we think life is all about, what we anticipate uh, or what we realize this picture of the good life is supposed to be, whether we realize it or not. And all human cultures have a vision of what that good life is, is supposed to look like. Every human culture does. And our American culture is obviously no different from that. And there's probably a lot of variety, you know, in what people think the good life is supposed to, to look like. What are humans for? What do we exist for? But there, there are specific things that, that our culture presents to us as being a part of the good life. Last week... The Super Bowl took place, a huge cultural event, you know, in our society. Uh, I think I read somewhere that 51% of Americans watched some portion of the game. And honestly, it, it's probably more than that. People read about it. I mean, a lot of our country has some interaction with, with the Super Bowl. And it's interesting to listen to media, you know, people talk about some of the players who play in the Super Bowl. They talk about them with this sort of envy in a lot of ways because our culture puts those guys up and certain ones of them more than others as people who 
have achieved the good life. I mean, everything that a lot of people aspire toward, these guys are realizing it in their lives. I mean, they have money, they have fame, accolades, they have achievement at the highest level of their particular uh, life goal. And so many folks in our society are attracted to that sort of vision that they get. They think, I would like to be like this guy. There's something attractive to them about the way that those celebrities, those people are living their lives. And I want to ask the question tonight, how do we arrive at that vision, that picture, that image in our head of what, of what human flourishing, of what the good life looks like? How do we get there? Well, there's something that, that captures our attention somewhere along the line. There's some image, there's some picture that compels us and is attractive to us. And we start to live in line with that. And we start to make decisions based on what we think a full and a satisfied life looks like. Maybe some of you have read a particular biography or a story and, you know, what, whatever, whether it was a missionary or um, a political figure, you know, something about their life was attractive to you. And so you started to make decisions and kind of move your life to emulate what you saw in, in his or her life. Uh, many folks today uh, will, will emulate and will be attracted to a lifestyle of celebrities, of musicians, of sports figures, um, and in some ways, they don't know anything else, but they see those people and they think, ah, oh, it would be wonderful to live a life like that, at least in certain areas. Now, it's, it's the beginning of the year, right? We're only a month in, and I'm sure that some of you have probably begun Bible reading plans this year. Maybe some of you are bogged down. You're in Leviticus and it's getting tough. And so you're bogged down with that already this year. Maybe you're not going to read through the whole Bible in a year. Maybe you're just going to focus on a particular section of Scripture, whatever it may be. But for a lot of us, there's a concerted effort to read Scripture more, more consistently this coming year. And this evening, I want to try to give you some help with your Bible reading. And the reason I do this and the reason I start out talking about the good life is because the vision that we should have of the good life is unfolded for us in the story of God's word, in the scriptures. The story that God tells in the Bible is what must capture our imagination. And the only way to truly catch that vision of what life is all about, of what the satisfied life looks like, the only way to capture that is to immerse yourself in God's word this coming year. It's to be a person of this book as much as is humanly possible this coming year. Now, as we start to do this, I want to open up to Psalm 1. Okay, open your Bibles up to the very first Psalm, Psalm 1. And I want to show you something in this Psalm that you may not have have come in contact with before. You may not have interacted with, may not have heard before uh, as you read Psalm 1. Psalm 1, you're very familiar with this psalm, I assume. And let's start with the word that is translated blessed at the beginning of the psalm. Now, I assume in most of your Bibles it's translated blessed or blessed. 
And in scripture, there's actually a distinct word that is used to talk about God blessing someone or God showing his favor to someone. And the thing about Psalm 1 is that's not this word. <laughs> the Hebrew word here is not, it, it doesn't indicate that, that God is showing blessing to this person necessarily. There's actually a distinct word, Barak is the word, that's used for that blessing, okay? This is a different word here that's used. Now, there's some overlap in the two words, but this word in Psalm 1 is actually talking about a life well lived. You could say, the man will flourish. The man will, will have a good life. He will live a well-lived life. That's what we're talking about in Psalm 1. The man described in Psalm 1 is not just approved of God. He certainly is. I mean, that's part of a well-lived life. The man in Psalm 1 is not just someone who has God's favor, although he certainly is. That's part of it. But the man here is living a rich and a full and a happy life as God originally intended human beings to live. This is how God envisioned life for us on the earth. So as we see that, we have to ask the question, what, what places this man in the state of well-being that he's in? I mean, this is a full and a rich and a satisfied life. How does this guy end up in this life? Well, let's read on. Blessed or, or flourishing is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And here's what brings this man to this position of a life well lived. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This guy has a vision of life that is shaped by the word of God. He loves God's word. He immerses himself in God's word. He delights in God's word. He doesn't delight in all of these, these ways of living that are described in verse 1, but he does delight himself in the story of Scripture, in the revelation of God that is unfolded in God's word. And what's the result of that? Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does. He prospers. I mean, that's that's a picture of a of fulfillment of a satisfied and a full and a rich life. It's this tree that is prospering, that is flourishing there. And that's what the man who bases his life, who meditates on scripture is like. He lives life to the fullest. And I think it's reasonable to think here in verse 3 that the author of this psalm is thinking back to the Garden of Eden. And he's thinking about this, this tree in the garden that is, is rich and is full and is healthy and is flourishing. And I think what he's saying here is that this life that is based on the word of God is how God intended humanity to be. This is what it's like to truly live life to the fullest. I don't know about you, but I really want to be this Psalm 1 kind of guy. I, I want to reach the end of my life, whenever that may be, and I want, to, I want to know 
that I lived a rich and a full and a good life before the Lord. I want to live a life that is determined by God's word. And I want this vision that scripture unfolds of a good life to be the vision that I am attracted to, that I long for. I don't want it to be the vision that's given in verse one. I want it to be the vision that is based on the word of God. I want that to be what my soul is attracted toward. And how does that happen? In 2015, I plunge myself into this book. I give myself, I devote myself to this book. This, by the way, is a read your Bible and pray every day kind of message tonight, okay? So just get ready for that, all right? And what I want to do tonight is, it's just more teaching time. I just want to just sit with you and I want to talk about how, I just want to try to help you to love God's Word and to study God's Word. And I want to help us all to just jump into God's Word this year and swim around and enjoy our time in God's Word this coming year. So I'm going to give you just a few principles here to guide you, to motivate you, and hopefully to help you to immerse yourself in God's Word and to meditate on it day and night this coming year. So the first one of these I'm going to say it this way. It should be on the screen here. The first one of these principles is know that you are reading one story. It's not on the screen, but it will be. We'll have communion in a minute, and then it'll get up here. All right, here we go. Know that you are reading one story, and it's not up there. That's all right. All right, I've said it enough. You can, you can follow with me. Know that you are reading one story as you read Scripture, all right? Open up to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Now, verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And what I think is happening here is I think this is a revamped new heavens and new earth. OK, uh, I don't think the old one was completely done away with. I think it was it was revamped and and cleansed of sin and remade here. And so we have this new heavens and new earth. And in this new heavens and new earth, verse two, we see a city coming. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then we read this statement in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, at this point... This statement in verse 3 is so important. At this point, the entire earth, okay, so the whole thing, the new heaven, the new earth, the whole thing is a suitable dwelling place for God. God's presence is going to dwell with men in this new earth in a full and a rich way. In the book of Habakkuk, you read about this time when God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Well, I think that time is here. In Revelation 21. But as you think back, 
This is the end of the story. As you think back to the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, what was the initial command that was given to Adam and Eve? The initial command was be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with image bearers of God spread out over the entire world so that God's glory will spread out over the world as his image bearers properly reflect him and spread out over the entire earth. Of course, you know the story. Adam and Eve failed to fulfill that task. But when we get to Revelation 21, the end of the story, we see that that original goal for creation, that original task given to Adam and Eve has been completed. It's been accomplished here. The end of the story has come. Back in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember he walked with them. He spent time with them in the garden. And they were to spread out and they were to spread the garden and spread God's presence over the entire earth. And here in Revelation 21, you see that very thing coming to completion. That has happened. That is being realized in Revelation 21. The the dwelling place of God is with men, finally. And then look what happens in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now look forward to Revelation 22. As I read these first few verses, I want you to just notice how many similarities there are between this text and Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, okay? See if you can pick these out as I read through these few verses, all right? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's a river in the Garden of Eden. Now you have a river in this new earth coming from the throne of God. The tree of life is here, producing fruit in abundance. There's no longer anything accursed here. In other words, the curses that were laid down in Genesis chapter 3 have been properly dealt with. And they're no more. The throne of God is in the midst of this city here. God dwells among his people, and that was the original goal for the Garden of Eden. It was to spread out over the earth, and God was to dwell with his people there. In verse 5, you see, uh, verse, yeah, verse 5, you see that humanity is reigning forever and ever with God. Well, that, that was the whole goal that God had for Adam and Eve. They were to spread out over the earth and have dominion over the earth. And you see that fulfilled here in Revelation chapter 22. There's so many similarities here in Revelation chapter 22, but the difference is all the bad things have come untrue. They are no more. The former things have passed away. 
And here's what we're saying. The resolution of the story has happened here in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. There's a quote uh, that they're going to put up on the screen here. Let me read this to you. There's something of value in seeing the big picture, for it frequently enables us to appreciate the details more clearly. That's so good. That's so good when it comes to Bible study. You see the big picture, now you can start to put the details where they're supposed to go. The scholarly tendency is to atomize biblical texts, to sort of pull them apart from the whole picture. It's often detrimental to understanding them. By stripping passages out of their literary contexts, meanings are imposed on them that were never intended by their authors. And that's what we do so much of the time because it's hard to see the big picture. It's really difficult sometimes to see the whole sweep of what God is doing with this world that he's created and with humanity that he's created. It's hard because the books of the Bible were written over so many different years and by so many different authors. But let me encourage you this year as you read this book, this one story that has a beginning And an ending that are the same. The resolution has happened in in Revelation 21 and 22. When you read your Bible this year, understand that Leviticus and Psalms and Isaiah and John and Philemon, all of those pieces fit under one big story that God is unfolding in his word. This story has a plot to it, like every good story does. And the sweep of this story goes from creation through the fall to redemption to the new creation that we anticipate and we long for in Revelation 21 and 22. And all the parts of this story contribute to the whole thing. And as you read, we ought to always try to understand how this part fits into the whole of the story. Now, let me help you a little bit more with that, because that sounds nice and big, but that's intimidating. All right. So the second uh, second help that I have for you here this evening, as you go to read your Bible this year, I hope is a pretty practical one. Know where you are reading. All right. So know you are reading one story. But when you read that one story, you want to know where in that story you are specifically reading. Where are you in the storyline of Scripture? Are you reading before the Israelites have entered the promised land or after? Has the nation been exiled yet? As you read the prophets, are these prophets who wrote before the exile or after the exile? If you're reading a gospel, where does the story in the gospel take place in the life of Christ? What's happening around that story? When we read scripture, we're trying to carefully think about how this passage that you're reading fits into the whole story. And one of the ways that we do that is by seeing where it lands in the story, knowing a biblical timeline and how things fit into the overall story. Now, I know that's intimidating. It's it's hard to do that in some ways. And don't worry if you can't immediately think of where something lands in the story or of how it fits into the story. Let me just encourage you, start somewhere. When you read what you're going to read this week, start to make baby steps in thinking, okay, I'm reading in the book of Leviticus. Maybe not a good place to start with this. 
I'm reading the story of David and Goliath. All right. Okay. So where does this fall in the history of Israel? What's going on in this story? What, what happens around this in the text of Scripture? Why is David brought to the forefront now? What happens right before David is anointed king? Think about all of that. Think about how this moment in Israel's history fits into the larger story of what God's doing with Israel and ultimately into the whole creation, the new creation that's happening. Think of it this way. Each episode, each story, each portion of scripture that you read is like a measure of music in a piece of music. It's like a measure. And so you need to understand, you need to know what comes before that measure, what comes after that measure of music. You need to know what song that measure of music is found in and what the whole song sounds like. And then you need to know if that song is a part of a bigger symphony that is being played and how it fits into that symphony. How does this song contribute to the symphony as a whole? And that's what you're doing. It's like you're starting with a bullseye and you're moving out to bigger and bigger levels of understanding how this fits into God's word. Now, as you're trying to think through how you do that, one of the ways that you you can do that is to try to understand what sort of scripture you're reading, as in what genre of scripture is it that you're reading? Okay. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know how this works in daily life. You don't read a blog post the same way that you read the grapes of wrath by John Steinbeck. Okay. You, you don't read it the same way at all. You don't read a poem by Robert Frost the same way that you read your phone bill. Okay. It would be a tragedy if you did. All right. You don't read an article that you, you, you find in a medical journal the same way that you read a Facebook post, all right? It wouldn't be a good idea to do that, all right? The Bible is filled with different types of, of literature, okay? It's, it's got poetry, it's got narrative, it's got letters, it's got apocalyptic literature. There's all different sorts of literature that are found in Scripture, and it's important to try to understand what that genre is and how it fits into the story. Now, if you don't know where to begin with that, let me just give you a tool suggestion to do that. Uh, get a good study Bible. I would recommend the ESV study Bible. It has a lot of good information on genre, on the big story of Scripture. Very helpful, very understandable. The ESV study Bible. I would recommend that if you're just starting out with this. But if this is really the most important book that's giving us our vision for a life well lived, then we need to devote ourselves to understanding this book and we ought to take study of it pretty seriously. All right, now, next one here. So we got know you're reading one story, know where you are reading in that story. You don't read the Psalms the same way you read the book of Ephesians. Two different time periods, different genres, all of that. All right, the next one. Know where you're reading and then know that the biblical authors knew their Bibles. All right? Now, let me explain what I mean by this. Hopefully this will be helpful to you. You may not have thought about this a whole lot, but the biblical writers read their Bibles an awful lot. They knew their Bibles very, very well. When you read Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, although this happens way more than we realize in the Old Testament, but when you read your New Testament, look for places 
where they quote scripture. Jeff gave us examples of that this morning. Okay, uh, Matthew was quoting scripture here as he wrote about what Christ was saying. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's alluding back to the book of Isaiah. That happens all the time in scripture, particularly in the New Testament. And they make it pretty clear a lot of times in the New Testament. And what I'm telling you is that if you can start to pick these these quotes and allusions out as you're reading your Bible, I think it will wake up your Bible reading and bring a fullness and a richness to it. It'll be like a six-year-old waking up on Christmas morning. I don't know if you've ever been around a six-year-old waking up on Christmas morning, but they approach that particular day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind, okay? All right? And so I think that if you start to look for the way the biblical authors use other biblical authors, man, it just brings a fullness and a richness to your study of God's word. For some reason, I don't know why this is, but it's like we don't think the biblical authors were very bright guys. You know, we, we just sort of in our modern mindset, we think we've got a lot of things figured out and we just sort of think, well, they lived a long time ago. You know, they didn't have flushable toilets, and so, you know, their technology really wasn't up to date, so they really must not have been all that bright a guys. I think that's kind of the way we approach them sometimes. Let me just say, the biblical authors were literary geniuses. I know they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit worked through their personalities, through their training. These guys wrote with clarity. They wrote with insight. These are bright, bright guys who wrote God's word. And as they wrote, they were influenced by their Bible more than any other book. And they wrote showing the influence that scripture had on them. So when you're reading your New Testament and you see a quote from an Old Testament author, man, go back and look that up. Don't just read over it. See what he was doing with that quote. See why he quotes it. Go back, read the Old Testament context of what's happening and understand that that it's connecting the whole big story together when the New Testament writers do that. Now, there's no better way to sort of hopefully whet your appetite for this than to give you an example of what I'm talking about. All right. So uh, I hope this is not too confusing as we go through it here. All right. But open to Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter 4. Let me try to walk you through this. So track with me, hopefully through this, and we'll try to make it as clear as we can. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21 is where we're going to start. Now let me explain a little bit what's going on here. In the book of Galatians, kind of big picture, Paul is dealing with false teachers, okay, And these false teachers are telling people that they need to obey the Old Testament law, specifically circumcision and some other things. That's a necessary part of salvation. Okay, so it's pretty, pretty simple, pretty understandable there. And these teachers that had come into the churches here, they were actually having influence. And so people were listening to these teachers and they were sort of agreeing with these teachers and saying, yes, that's right. We need to be under some of the Old Testament law here. And so what Paul's doing in this book is he's challenging them, the people and the false teachers, that 
that they need to understand that salvation is by faith alone, apart from keeping the Old Testament law. All right, so that's kind of the background here. Now look at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, all right, so to obey those aspects of the law, to see that as a necessary means of salvation. And he says, do you not listen to the law? So Paul's going to direct their attention back to the Old Testament, to the books of Moses. All right, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. All right, now, you all are good Bible students. Who are these two sons? And Isaac. Very good. Excellent. All right, Ishmael and Isaac. Okay, Ishmael by Hagar. Isaac by Sarah. All right, so that's in your mind here. Let's go on to verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. All right, this is important that you understand what's happening in verse 23. This is the major distinction between these two sons, okay? What does it mean that the son of Hagar, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh? Well, you got to think back to the story of Abraham, okay? God had made promises, specifically a promise of, a, of an heir to Abraham, and that promise had not been fulfilled yet. They didn't have Isaac. And so Sarah starts to think, and she starts to plan. And according to human wisdom, apart from God, according to the flesh, her own way of thinking, she decides to give Abraham Hagar, and Ishmael is born from that. So that's according to human reasoning, according to human desires, according to human thinking, all right? But Sarah and Isaac are different. Isaac was born because God had promised that he would be born. So Isaac's birth was fully and completely based on God coming through on his promise. Ishmael's birth was based on human conniving and human reasoning and fleshly ideas. But Isaac's birth was based on God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. Now, verse 24, things start to get sticky a little bit here. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, okay? Uh, I think you could say typologically here, all right? So there's a type that's happening here, all right? Now, what this means is that Hagar, you, well, let me read the rest of the verse. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, okay? So they represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. What happened on Sinai? The law is given there, okay? The law of Moses, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. All right, so the Jews in the present Jerusalem were still acting like they were enslaved to the law that was given all right, at Mount Sinai. Okay? So that's what's happening here. The current Jewish system during Paul's time, people were still attempting to make the law necessary for salvation. And that's not what the law was intended to do, but they were acting like it was necessary for salvation. Now, verse 26. Now we're flipping to the other son, the other mother. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. All right, what's this talking about? It's talking about Sarah. It's talking about 
the heavenly Jerusalem, not the current system, but the, the, the one that is based on the promises of God. Okay. Sarah is the mother of those who come to salvation by trusting the promises of God. Very different than those who try to earn salvation by keeping the law. All right. Now, all of that background, basically just two ideas coming to God through keeping the law, coming to God through the promise. Now, verse 27, this is where he quotes the Old Testament for it is written. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, if you just read this and read over it and don't think, okay, this is a quote from the Old Testament. What's happening here? You're going to miss some richness that I hope we can expose to you here. It's a quote from the Old Testament. And Paul is using this quote to support his argument. Okay, Paul doesn't just grab words from the Old Testament and sort of insert them in here, just random willy-nilly and say, oh, this is neat how this corresponds to what I'm talking about. That's not what he does here. He rightly interprets his Old Testament. This is found, this quote, in Isaiah 54 and verse 1. And I want you to flip over there. All right. Isaiah 54 and verse 1. Isaiah 54, 1. And to me, this is where this starts to get exciting. Hold your finger in Galatians 4, Isaiah 54 and verse 1. Look what he says here. Saying, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. And when you think about a barren woman in the Old Testament, think about Isaiah writing this. Who's the most prominent barren woman in the Old Testament? I mean, I would think it would have to be Sarah. And I think here Isaiah is referring to Sarah and he's saying Sarah is going to rejoice because Sarah is going to have children. Even though she was barren, she's going to have children. God's promising to Sarah and ultimately to Israel that despite judgment, despite barrenness, her children are going to be abundant. Now, you got to continue reading when you go back to these quotes. Look at verse two. Still talking, I think, to Sarah here, enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. What's he saying there? Sarah, you're going to need a bigger tent. (laughs) You're going to need a bigger tent. You are going to have lots of children, lots of of children. In fact, you're going to have so many children that you're going to have to strengthen the stakes of your tent because there's no way your tent is going to hold all of these children. I love the language there. Look at verse three. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. In fact, Sarah, In fact, Israel, your offspring is going to be so numerous that they're going to possess the nations. Isaiah continues in verse four. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. 
For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you in overflowing anger for a moment. I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So in Isaiah, God promises to Sarah And ultimately, Sarah, the line of Israel, that those who come to God by trusting his promises will be so abundant that they will fill the earth. And she's going to need a much bigger tent to contain them. Now, when Paul quotes this passage here in Isaiah 54, he's not just referring to this one verse in Isaiah 54. What comes before Isaiah 54? Isaiah 53. Let me read you some some verses from Isaiah 53, starting in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now go back to Galatians chapter 4. Look at verse 28. After this quote where Paul wants you to think of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54 and how these, these children of the promised one are going to spread out over the whole earth. Look at verse 28. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as that time he was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Through the work of the servant in Isaiah 53, through his being crushed for the iniquities of the many, Sarah can anticipate that many, many will come through the promise that God has made. And you and I are those children. We've received that promise as we trust the Lord. And we become children of Sarah and children of Abraham, as the song says. So here's what I'm telling you this evening. All right. The Bible writers knew their Bibles. They studied them. They loved their Bibles. Matthew loved his Old Testament. Paul breathed the Old Testament. It came out all the time. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah knew the book of Deuteronomy. They talked about other scriptures all the time as they wrote what the Holy Spirit inspired them to write. So when you read your Bible this coming year, Take note of what the biblical authors are doing and quoting other texts of Scripture. It'll bring a richness and a fullness to your grasp of God's Word. 
and it'll refresh your soul as you see how the whole thing fits together. Now, last couple things real quickly. Number four here helps for reading your Bible. Know that you are encountering God. As you read this story, as you see how it all fits together, as you see how the biblical authors used other passages of Scripture, understand that you are encountering God. What's happening when you read your Bible? Well, you're hearing God's Word, but when you think back to the Old Testament, God's Word is very, very powerful. I mean, we think about God's word in the Old Testament. We think about it in terms of creating everything. And if you go back and read Psalm 29 in particular, Psalm 29 talks about God's voice breaking the cedars, shaking the wilderness. God's word is very, very powerful. And we often think about God's word being powerful as it relates to, you know, physical creation. He can calm the storms. He can create the world. He can break the cedars. That's what God's voice does. We think of it that way. How is God's word powerful when it comes to us as human beings? Well, here's what I would say is happening when you read scripture, maybe tomorrow morning. God is acting on you as you read scripture. Okay? It's just like he acts on the cedars on creating the sun, moon, and stars, he acts on us by making claims on our hearts and minds as we open his word and as we read it. What are some of the acts that God performs on us? He promises things. He elicits faith in us as we read. He warns us. He rebukes us. He encourages us. He gives us hope and he motivates us. All of those are ways that God acts on us And brings us into an encounter with him as we open his word and as we read it. And what I'm saying is there's no neutrality when you come to God's word. Okay? When you open it and read it, when you study it, when you sit under the preaching of God's word, there's no neutrality here as you interact with God. Every time you read the scripture, God is calling to you saying, do you trust me? Will you obey me? Do you believe that I'm good? Do you love me? He's doing all of those things. And God's word puts you in a position of either believing the God of the universe and obeying him or doubting him and disobeying him every time you interact with God's word. It's an encounter with God. And you can either embrace him or you can turn your back and walk away and rebel against his word. What I'm saying is you're not simply gathering information as you read this book. You are encountering God. Another quote for you on the screen here. A book, uh, it's a great book about God's word. Therefore, the most appropriate question to ask ourselves when we open scripture to read it is, what is God wanting to do to me and in me through the words I am reading? When we read the Bible, we must be ready In the first instance, instance, for God to act on us and in us. For as we encounter his words and as we encounter the actions he performs by means of them, we are encountering God himself. You're not just opening a book tomorrow morning when when you read. You're encountering God. You're encountering a covenant keeping God as you open his word and as he makes promises and calls you to trust and obey him. So, how do we approach 
our Bible reading time this week. I want to give you three attitudes to approach the Bible this week, and then we'll finish up. All right. First of all, approach the Bible expectantly. Approach God's word expectantly this week. If God is actually speaking in order to bring me into a relationship with him, that changes the way I approach this book. If I am expecting an encounter with God as I open this book, it changes it for me. Now, I understand emotions aren't always going to run sky high when you read your Bible. You may pick up scripture, you may read, and you may not feel much of anything on that particular day. But as you read, your, your attitude should go from information gathering to encountering God Almighty as you read. Tim read for us this morning Psalm 19. And the second half of that psalm deals with God's word, special revelation to us. And we don't have time to read it tonight, but I'd encourage you to go back and look at all the actions that God performs on us through his word as we open ourselves up to his word. And those actions should lead us to a state of expectation as we open this book and as we read it. Again, that doesn't always mean that you're going to get this fabulous, wonderful thought that's going to carry you through the day. You're not going to get always an electric jolt of spiritual energy as you read God's word in the morning or in the evening. But what you have to do is read and trust that God is at work. And as you understand the story, as you fit things into the story, as you start to see how the authors use the other parts of Scripture, and it's all fitting together and pointing toward Christ, as that happens slowly over time, God is shaping you and he's forming your vision of the good life and what that looks like. And that means the second way we approach God's word is that we approach it humbly. We approach God's word expectantly. We approach it humbly. And I'll start this one with a quote here. To read scripture as God's word requires that we approach the triune God with humility and with a willingness, I love this, to be read by the text, to stand under it, not simply to seek to understand it. We need to understand it, but there's more that happens as you open God's word and read it. We seek to stand under God's word, to put ourselves under the text and let the text read us and let the story of Scripture shape the way we think and not to come to the Bible with our own way of seeing the world and say, this is how it is and I have to fit God's word into my paradigm today of seeing the world. I come to the word humbly and place myself under God's word and let him shape me as I read it. James chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. Uh, You can read that text later. Again, we don't really have time to go through it. Um, But it talks about receiving the word which is able to save your soul and receiving it with humility. It's powerful and life-altering. So place yourself under God's word. Now the last way to approach God's word this week, obediently. Expectantly, humbly, and obediently. Information is not the only goal. Transformation is the goal as you read God's word. And that means that application is not optional. 
You can't just read God's word and sort of put it back on the shelf and not be changed by it. Now, again, that change may be slow in happening. It don't mean, doesn't mean you have to come from, away from God's word every day with some new task you have to do. But it does mean that over time you have to be shaped by the narrative of what God is doing from creation through redemption to the new creation. I do want you to flip over Matthew chapter 7, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll end in this passage. Matthew chapter 7. I want you to see how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 24. And as I'm reading this ending here, I want you to think, what's the difference between the two people who are described here? Okay? Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. What's the difference here? They both heard the word, but one acted on it. It's as clear as can be in the text. Everyone, verse 24, who hears these words of mine and does them. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. That's the fundamental difference between the two guys who are described here. One hears the Sermon on the Mount and follows through on it. It shapes the way he sees life. The other hears the word of God and he doesn't respond in obedience to it. It doesn't change the way he thinks about the world and the way he acts in the world. There's a quote from Augustine that we'll put up on the screen here. I love this. Whoever, therefore, thinks that he understands the divine scriptures or any part of them so that it does not build up the double love of God and neighbor does not understand it at all. You can study scripture all you want, but if your love for God is not being fostered and your love for your neighbor is not being fostered, then we're not getting it. (laughs) It's not doing the work that God intends for it to do as we encounter him in the word. So there's no other application for you tonight other than this. Read, 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 (laughs) study, go, meditate. Ask questions. Talk to one another about what you're reading. Hey, I don't even understand how Paul's using this Old Testament. Talk about it. That's what the church is for. That's what the community here is for. Discuss the word. Fill your mind with Scripture. Let the vision of the good life from Scripture control you and fill you and shape you this coming year. Love. Let's together, let's love the word of God. Dive into it. Swim around and enjoy it in 2015. Let me close in prayer. Father, we're so blessed, Lord, to be able to have your word. You have definitely shown us your favor in giving us the full canon of Scripture to be studied, to be learned, to be obeyed, to let it shape the way we see the world, Lord. I pray for each one here as we, as we go home tonight, as we get up tomorrow whether we read in the morning or in the evening, Lord, I just pray that you would compel us by your word, that you would, you would 
give us an affection and a desire for you through your word. I pray that we would long and hunger after your word this coming week, Lord. I pray that we would immerse ourselves in scripture so that we can understand and so that we can be changed by your word, Father. Help us this year to be people of the book, Lord. People who have a vision for the good life that is shaped by your word. Thank you for all you've done for us, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace to us. Give us a good and a safe night tonight. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And you all are dismissed.